Hello, and welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am, as always, your host, Garrett Ashley Mullet. I've been listening to Audible for a number of years now. I listen to books while I'm driving to and from work at a minimum, and if I get called out between facilities, I listen usually on the way, uh, on the drive. Sometimes, depending on what I'm doing as I work, I can throw headphones in and uh, listen while I work, but... I have a lot of windshield time, and so I spent a lot of time listening to audiobooks. Now, when I very first started working in the oil and gas industry back in 2012, I listened to uh, the music on my smartphone, and that worked out well for a while, and then I realized I have a limited amount of music on my smartphone, and it gets kind of tedious and repetitive after a while. So then I signed up for SiriusXM satellite radio, which was especially handy compared with the uh, AM and FM channels where I was working in the hills of uh, eastern Montana. Didn't always get good reception with the channels that were coming in. And so SiriusXM was great. I got a good clear signal. And I thought, man, there's so much variety that I'm never going to get bored with satellite radio. I've got endless variety and it's always fresh. It's always new. And that actually is when I started listening to the Patriot Channel, for instance, on Sirius XM, listening to a lot of conservative talk radio. And also, I started listening to a lot of Fox News and a lot of CNN and a lot of BBC and a lot of uh, not so much MSNBC. I couldn't stomach them even back then when I was first getting into studying politics and uh, the, the, the way that current events are covered and not covered by our mainstream media outlets here in the United States of America. But it wasn't as long as I thought that I listened to satellite radio before I realized that that too was kind of on a loop. You you get to a certain uh, critical mass of the same channels and the same content just kind of regurgitated over and over and over again. And that gets to be tedious as well. And so I started looking elsewhere. And uh, the first place I ended up going to when I was bored with uh, satellite radio was I went to my local library there in Glendive, Montana. And I started looking at their audiobooks and listening first to nonfiction. And then every now and then I would sprinkle in a little bit of fiction. Uh, my high school and college days, uh, more so especially in my high school days, I read a lot of fiction. And uh, I was surprised when I got into audiobooks how little, relatively speaking, I was interested in fiction anymore. Uh, I used to read a lot of science fiction, a lot of uh, Isaac Asimov, and uh, you know, I, I, just anybody, right? Anybody that uh, would have... Um, something interesting and, and, you know, was, was, uh, widely regarded as a, a classic, uh, author of, uh, science fiction in the golden age of science fiction. Uh, Frank Herbert, his Dune series was really fantastic. And, uh, and so I, I listened to, uh, not so much fiction. Once I got into audiobooks, I started listening to a lot of history and a lot of, uh, political philosophy and a lot of, uh, books of that nature. And because of, Living with my grandparents at the time and coming home, uh, you know, what was home was their house for the first three months when I moved back to Montana from Southern Ohio. There was a lot of conversation around the dinner table. Morning, noon, and night, uh, there was a willingness to talk about what was going on in the country, what was going on in 
the Capitol, what was going on around the world, and how did the Republican Party, how did the Democratic Party, and anybody in between feel about all that? What were their solutions proposed for the problems of our day? Barack Obama was president still at that point. He had just been elected to a second term in 2012. And we had seen four years of Barack Obama and Joe Biden uh, leading the country from the executive branch in the White House. And so my grandpa, especially, he was uh, happy to ask the question, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And so I felt like I needed to be informed about the opinions I was stating. Now, to be clear, Eastern Montana, uh, old uh, farm family and business family, uh, Fox News was on, right? We weren't listening to CNN. We weren't listening to MSNBC. We were listening to Fox News. And uh, and from that, I actually developed a bit of a, um, oh, what, what would you call it, a bias maybe against Fox News, uh, not because I didn't like their political bent, but because at a certain point I recognized that they too are a propaganda outlet and, and also very superficial. They're not so concerned with getting deeply into any topic. They want to hit the high points. They want to cover their talking points. And then they want to move on. And they want to do little 30-second sound bites like everybody else does. The same format, the same uh, way of getting into issues. And if a given guest gets to be a little bit too detailed on what they're talking about, they switch, right? They, they switch segments. They say, well, we got to take a break for advertisements or let's hear from somebody else. And that always bothered me because it's like, well, wait a second. We're just getting to the substance of the remarks here. We're just getting to the meat. We're getting you know, past the superficial differences and into what really, really matters and, and what might actually change people's thinking. It might help them to connect the dots. It might help them to understand why X, Y, or Z is a better option, a better solution than A, B, or C. And, uh, and so I, I, was, I developed a frustration with Fox News. Now, on the talk radio uh, side of things, I listened all day that I was working, which could be from early, early morning until late in the evening, depending on what kind of issues I was running into as I was running my route, uh, taking care of operating oil and gas wells for ConocoPhillips for four and a half years. Uh, depending on what kind of issues I ran into, I might be out there at all hours of the day or night, even in the middle of the night, not as often, but sometimes I would get called out in the middle of the night. And so I listened to a lot of talk radio. I listened to Mark Levin and Andrew Wilkow and um, you know everybody, everybody that was on. Sean Hannity was on there. Glenn Beck was on there before he broke off and did the, the blaze and, and did his own separate thing. And I really didn't like Mark Levin. Uh, I liked what he had to say, but I didn't like the way that he said it. I didn't like that he always seemed to be trying to, you know, gin up a kind of anger and 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 upset and irritation. I didn't like Andrew Wilkow because it felt like he was always being really really snarky, and that it was a shtick. I didn't like his shtick. Uh, some of the substance of what he had to say was good, but it felt more like red versus blue and less like truth versus falsehood. It felt more like Republicans versus Democrats and less like 
goodness versus evil. And the more that I actually listened and studied and thought about these political issues and these social uh, questions of our day, the more it seemed to me like there was a vacuum regarding Christian ideas of truth and goodness and, and where from the scriptures we are coming from that we look at these issues, we have to look at these issues differently. If someone's making a fundamentally contrary truth claim or, or a fundamentally opposite claim about what's right and wrong, uh, and then saying you have to vote a certain way, you have to support a certain thing, you have to uh, endorse a certain candidate, then we as Christians should be wise about that. We should be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We should understand how Romans 13 uh, affects our obligation or responsibility to obey the governing authorities and to submit to them, and also where the limit is. Where is the line in the sand past which we cannot cross and past which political candidates and governing officials and elected representatives and our system cannot cross in expecting our allegiance and obedience and submission and acquiescence. And I didn't hear anybody really talking about that on talk radio, on Fox News. The closest anyone seemed to come in those days was Glenn Beck. And Glenn Beck would talk about his faith. He would talk about the Bible. He would talk about Judeo-Christian values. And yet I knew that Glenn Beck was a Mormon. And so his views on these things are not quite what mine are. I am not a Mormon, and Mormonism has its own distinctives. It has its own uh, particular views on specific issues and its own particular worldview based on their scriptures, based on their writings, based on their traditions, et cetera, et cetera. And so Glenn Beck, even though I agreed with a lot of things he was saying, and I liked that he was using religious language and verbiage, and he had at least, you know, not a completely godless perspective, a completely utilitarian, the ends justify the means perspective on political issues. I was always keeping him at arm's length in my mind and thinking to myself, it would be really great if we had a conservative evangelical Christian who was doing political commentary, who was talking about these issues and examining them in light of the scriptures, in light of the perspective on the scriptures that all scriptures God breathed and suitable for doctrine, for correction, for rebuke, for instruction unto righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. It would be great to have someone talking about these issues, at least from the default starting position that I'm at, so that I'm not constantly having to sift their interpretations of things and their conclusions. I'm not having to sift their interpretations of events and truth claims and their conclusions that they arrive at through this filter of, well, how much of this actually uh, can I agree with based on their presuppositions and, and having to parse this out and having to, to dissect it before I could you know, know whether I can agree with it. Years went by and Ben Shapiro made a name for himself uh, getting threatened, getting bullied on TV by a transvestite. You know, you call him slash her a transgendered person, whatever you want to uh, refer to those folks back in, you know, the day they were transvestites, right? It's a dude who's dressing up like a lady. 
and he's trying to tell you I am a woman. He's not actually a woman. He's biologically a man. He is a man. He's just a confused man who is uh, trying to pretend that he is a woman. But Ben Shapiro got threatened on TV and uh, and was you know told if you keep this up, little boy, uh, you're going to leave here in an ambulance. I'm going to I'm going to beat you up. And everybody cheered because this was a very liberal, uh, not liberal, but a very leftist. Um, outlet that he was appearing on as as part of the panel discussion. So then Ben Shapiro takes off. He starts doing speaking tours at universities, and radical leftists on campus are organizing to oppose this and say, "No, you can't be here. You can't show up. You can't talk. Your your language is violence. Your your views are hurtful, and uh, we're going to violently oppose you even getting to talk." There is no free speech here because your free speech hurts my feelings, my precious fifis. And so then before you know it, you get a whole crop of political commentators that are trying to poke the bear the way that Ben Shapiro does. And then Ben Shapiro and some others organize, they get together. And uh, Ben Shapiro had worked for Breitbart for a number of years. He ended up leaving Breitbart, had his uh, differences with uh, Steve Bannon, who worked with the Trump administration for a while, uh, ended up breaking away, Ben Shapiro did, and he and Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles and Andrew Clavin started The Daily Wire. And anymore, that's what I follow. If I'm looking for political uh, commentary, if I'm looking for news that uh, I can trust that's going to at least be in the general universe that I occupy in my worldview, in my perspective on things, Uh, I don't expect to go to the Daily Wire and get a whole bunch of nonsense that is propaganda that's trying to brainwash me into agreeing with things that I fundamentally cannot if I'm going to be a person with a consistent worldview, if I'm going to be a person who is uh, you know, not self-defeating in my thinking, futile in my thinking, and not naive, not uh, misled and and led away to the slaughter and uh, silently uh, anesthetized to my responsibilities. So I like the Daily Wire, and I like what Ben Shapiro is doing there. I like what uh, the rest of the, the crew there is doing. I am partial to Andrew Clavin. I think he's funny. I think he's enjoyable. I think he's got a, a, a more measured approach. And he doesn't take things so seriously that uh, it's just this put-on faux outrage to try and drum up his base. I, I don't think that when others have done that over the years, like uh, Mark Levin, like Sean Hannity, like Andrew Wilkow, I don't think when they've done that, that they have done their audience a service. They've catered to their service. Uh, They've catered to their audience because their audience was angry. Their audience was upset about what Barack Obama and his radical administration were doing to the country. And so those political commentators realized that in order to get these people to listen to us and what we're trying to tell them, we have to be angry as well. Now, some of that was genuine, right? And justified. And rightly so. They should have been angry about the things that were going on. But in your anger, do not sin. Okay. For one, we have to not embrace anger. And the book of James tells us everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Now, what that tells me as a Christian is that it's not a sin to be angry, but I am more vulnerable to temptations to sin when I'm angry. And so that 
gives me a good reason to try to not be angry, to be slow to anger, so that I am thinking and being diligent and looking out for traps and looking out for manipulations and and being steady and careful and slow is smooth and smooth is fast, as the saying goes. And if I'm going to be effective and not just emotional about the things that are going on around me, that's got to be my strategy. That's got to be my tactic is to be calm, to be measured, and not to be, uh, you know, boring and academic, but to be careful and to choose my words well and to aim small and miss small and to line up my targets and take my shots uh, in a discreet, diligent, and uh, intentional way. And so I, what I like about the Daily Wire crowd is that they do that. I like that Andrew Clavin especially brings a sense of humor to things. I love that he opens his uh, Andrew Clavin show with satire. I love that he starts by poking fun at just the ridiculousness and the absurdity of what's going on. And I, I, I like the Babylon Bee for a similar reason. I like that they, they take things to ridiculous lengths. And yet, increasingly, there's not much farther that they have to exaggerate the people, places, and things that uh, are, are in the news and current events in order to make them completely absurd. In fact, I think we're increasingly seeing that there are limits to satire when things become so absurd that you can't tell the difference between satire and actual headlines. And you know, we see evidence of the fact that this is where we're at when Facebook is taking down satirical uh, content from the Babylon Bee because, for one, their content moderators have no sense of humor. Uh, they are woke and uh, they've, they've gone woke or go broke. And uh, I hope that it breaks uh, these uh, woke outlets and, and institutions and persons and that they, they come to a really uh, good understanding at some point that their worldview is bankrupt. The reason they're angry so, so much of the time, the reason they're frustrated so much of the time is because their worldview is fundamentally broken. It just is not going to work. The reason we're making fun of you is because your ideas are ridiculous. They are bad ideas and you're so deep in it. You're up to your eyeballs in it and you can't see the forest for the trees. You can't see how absurd what you believe and what you propose is. How counterproductive, how idiotic. And I don't say idiotic to hurt your feelings, but this is really dumb. This is really, really dumb. I like Andrew Clavin doing the satire thing. I like that he opens his episodes with that. But uh, Andrew Clavin and I are not 100% on, in agreement. Uh, I don't think he does enough of uh, deep diving into the scriptures. He will say Christian things. He is a Christian, uh, born-again Christian in recent years. He had been uh, a secular Jew for all of his life, and, and then he realized at a certain point that uh, Jesus Christ was the Messiah, and uh, and so now he's a Christian, and so he'll incorporate his Christian worldview into issues from time to time, and it it stays relatively superficial, right? Uh, it stays relatively surfacey, and he'll refer more to principles, and and less uh, the the nuts and bolts of theology, and on some of the the issues, you know, particularly with the LGBT crowd. I sense that he is reluctant to offend. He doesn't want to say too much that might, uh, you know, provoke the folks that, uh, you know, on the right, among conservatives, 
uh, don't think rightly about the LGBT issues. He doesn't want to alienate those people. And so he adopts more of a live and let live approach, which is fine, uh, except we cannot, we cannot stretch the truth. We cannot uh, misrepresent the truth about what God says about sexual morality in his word. Uh, as we're being gracious, as we're being tolerant, as we're being kind and merciful and all of that, Micah 6, 8 does say that one of the things God requires of us is to love mercy. While we're loving mercy, we cannot distort the truth and say that God's position is other than it is. And we should be clear about it and say, you know, if there is sin in your life that keeps you separate from God and we love you, uh, you need to repent of that. That is part of the gospel. It's, it's integral and, uh, and, and you can't have the gospel, you can't have the good news without a explanation and unpacking that your sin is what separates you from God. Your sin is what has you condemned and hellbound. Uh, your sin is what has you, you know, like a, a zombie. You are the walking dead. And the gospel is good news because there is a way to be made right with God despite your sinfulness, despite your bad actions, despite your sinful inclinations that you give into and that you practice. But in, in, in the antidote is a turning away from the poison. You have to turn away from sin. You have to repent. That's what repenting means. You're turning away from sin. So you can't walk in that lifestyle anymore. And if you do, then you haven't really embrace the gospel. You haven't really believed in Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commands. And so we cannot say somebody is a Christian and also they practice these sins and all sin is sin. So, you know, whatever, what's the difference? And we're going to wink at that and come right in and, and you can live any way you like. Uh, there's a lot more that could be said about in the New Testament. I don't want to get into that too deeply in this episode. But suffice to say, even when it comes to the Andrew Clavens, or the Matt Walsh's, or the Ben Shapiro's, or the Michael Knowles, I don't find somebody approaching these topics in a way that I, I really feel they need to be in order for us to be clear-headed and to understand why we need to believe what we believe. And uh, and I, I don't see you know Ben Shapiro being unfriendly toward Christianity. I don't see uh, Michael Knowles and uh, and 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 um, Matt Walsh saying things that are contrary to Christianity in terms of their overarching um, values. But uh, to my knowledge, Michael Knowles and Matt Walsh are both Roman Catholics. And uh, I have a number of friends that are Roman Catholic. I'm not a Roman Catholic, however. And so I don't come to these issues. I don't come to these questions. Uh, similar to the issue with Glenn Beck, I don't, I don't come to these issues from the perspective of a Roman Catholic or a Mormon. Uh, I don't come to these issues from the perspective of a conservative, you know, religious practicing Jew, as Ben Shapiro is. Now, I can appreciate that they are at least in possession of a faith that God exists, as opposed to the Democrats and uh, the left, who very often are absolutely godless. Their, their god is Karl Marx. Their god is Saul Alinsky. Their god is Niccolò Machiavelli. Their god is reason as they see it. And, uh, and it, it, you know, compared to that, Ben Shapiro is a breath of fresh air. Compared to that, Matt Walsh is a breath of fresh air. Compared to that, 
Glenn Beck is a breath of fresh air if he even acknowledges that there is a God that we are going to be accountable to who is going to ask us uh, at a certain point, you know, how did you live? What things did you say? What things did you do? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you say what I told you to say? Were you the person that I made you to be? Or did you spend your life in rebellion and futility and in violence against my plans and purposes, in violence against my people? So we have common ground, me and those political commentators, and yet I find them uh, insufficient in terms of dealing with these political issues, dealing with these questions of our day from a social standpoint as well, because it isn't just government. It isn't just who gets to be president. It isn't just, you know, who <laughs> who writes the laws, who sets the policy, uh, who enforces the laws, who, who judges what's constitutional and what isn't. It isn't just all that stuff. All that stuff, all that representative government percolates up from society. It percolates up from what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about reality, what we believe about God. And so what I've wanted to find, and I haven't found it to my satisfaction, is someone who's saying, quite frankly, the things that I'm saying. And that's a major reason why I'm saying what I'm saying. I see nobody stepping in to fill that gap in a satisfactory way. And so I'll go, right? I feel a little bit or a lot of bit like David when he comes to bring food to his brothers who are serving in the armies of Israel. And they are camped uh, opposite the Philistines. And this giant, literal giant, I believe, literal giant, Goliath is standing between the two armies as the Philistine champion, and he's taunting the armies of the living God. He's taunting Israel. He's taunting and mocking the Almighty God for days. And David shows up. He's the young guy. He's he is the guy that was told to stay off to the sidelines when the prophet Samuel comes looking for who's going to be the anointed next king of Israel. He's the one who's told, you know what, you don't even bother showing up. You can just go take care of the sheep. Your brothers are here. They're much more qualified. Just stay out of the way, please. Uh, you get the impression from the way that David's father, Jesse, treats him that he is an embarrassment. He is not the person that they want as a family representing their family. He is not the one that they want being their spokesperson. In fact, if he's even there in the mix, he's going to change the dynamics to such an extent that they're going to be very, very disappointed uh, when Samuel comes to the conclusions that he does about them or when the broader community looks at them moving forward. And so they tell him, you know what, just stay out of the way. Uh, that's the way I read it. He, he is not embraced as representative. He's not who they want to represent them, even as a family. So how much less so are they going to expect that he's going to be the king of Israel? How much less are they going to expect him to be referred to as a man after God's own heart? And yet, when Samuel is looking at Jesse's sons, he says, is this it? Right? Is this all you got? Well, no, actually, there, there is one more. He's out tending the, the flocks. Well, send for him. Send for this other son because the Lord is telling me these are not what he sent me here to find. These are not any of them who God has chosen. And then David is brought and he gets anointed 
And you come to find out that this is the man after God's own heart in the, in the grand scheme of things. Now, he's not perfect. He does get carried away. He does get overly angry with Nabal, for instance. Nabal treats David and his men in an extremely rude way at, at a certain point. And they're fleeing from, uh, you know, the, the men that seek their blood, that want their heads. And David and his men end up protecting Nabal's servants. Nabal treats them contemptuously and basically says, get out of here. I don't owe you anything. And Nabal and his guys, they want to kill that Nabal. Uh, David wants to murder this guy and his household because of how rudely Nabal has treated uh, David and his men. And uh, and he ends up being talked out of it by Nabal's uh, dear sweet wife, Abigail. She says, oh, my Lord, don't do this thing. This is a wicked thing. Please don't do this. Uh, I know how difficult he is, <laughs> but don't do this. And so David backs off. He says, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm getting carried away. I'm getting too worked up. I need to just chill. Now, this, that's the uh, GSV, Garrett Standard Version, uh, paraphrase of that passage. But uh, you fast forward or, or rewind or, or whatever. If you look at when David comes to bring food to his brothers and Goliath is taunting the armies of Israel, between the two camped armies, the armies of Philistia and the armies of Israel, David asks, who is going to fight Goliath? Because that was the way that a lot of uh, war was made back in those days. You would have two armies encamped. Each army would have a champion, and the champions would fight in front of both armies. And that would be either A, a way of limiting the violence. We see who's got the stronger, strongest guy. And then whoever wins that fight to the death, that army ends up winning. Um, or it ends up being kind of a preview, right? We're going to send our champion. You're going to send your champion. Whoever wins gives the other side a blow to their morale. And so we're, this is just kind of a thing that we're going to do. And then you're going to get an idea that, hey, you're going to lose this battle. Let's all get a preview because neither side wants to just jump in and just let's have it out. They want to send a representative to go before them. King Saul is reigning at this point, and he's in his tent. He's hiding in his tent for days and doing nothing. He is asleep at the wheel. He is being negligent. He is not fulfilling his responsibility. Now, he's head and shoulders taller than every other man in Israel. He was chosen based on appearances. And when God tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse, because there is another who will be taking up the reins after Saul, because Saul has been rejected. He's been faithless. He has not obeyed. He has not uh, kept God's word. When God tells Samuel to go, he says, don't look for a man that you are going to judge by appearances. I will show you who it is that's going to be the next king, but I don't judge by appearances. I judge the heart. I judge the mind. I am looking at who this person really is underneath the surface, underneath all of these facades and all the pretension. And so David ends up, for one, being anointed, even though he was the black sheep that was sent to go and guard the sheep. He ends up fighting Goliath. He offers to fight. He has no armor. He has no sword. 
He has a sling and five smooth stones. Saul offers him his armor, but it's too big, right? That gives us an idea of scaling. You know, not only is David smaller than Goliath, David is smaller than Saul, who really, by all rights, should have been the one who stepped up and fought Goliath. But it's precisely this kind of cowardice that is why the kingdom was taken away from Saul. It is precisely this kind of faithlessness, which is why the kingdom was taken away from Saul and it was given to David in his household. Because David steps up and his confidence is not in armor, it's not in a sword, it is in the living God. And so he trusts that the living God of Israel is going to deliver this uncircumcised Philistine into his hands with nothing but a sling and a stone. He says, I've, I've protected my father's sheep with this sling and stone. And so I'm going to basically treat this Philistine champion the same way I would treat a bear or a lion that was coming after my father's sheep. And that's so beautiful. I get, I get goosebumps when I even just think about that. It's so right. It's so beautiful. It's so appropriate. It's so good. And that is what we need. That is what we need. Now, I'm not what we need, but that is what we need. And so I feel a responsibility to bring that to my writing at On the Rocks. I feel a responsibility to bring that to my engagement on social media. You know, whatever it amounts to, whether it is a drop in the bucket, whether it is a snowflake on a hot tin roof that evaporates as soon as it touches, it doesn't matter to the main point, which is that God will judge. If I am giving my widow's might, then I have a good conscience. I could sleep at night. And that should be our attitude. Our attitude should be David's. For all David knew, and for all anybody else in the armies of Israel expected, he was going to get cut to pieces in short order. And he didn't. But even if he had, what of it? You know, you think about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Before they're thrown in, they say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. And so the choice that they're presented with is either A, you bow down to this golden image of the king and worship it, even though God makes it explicitly clear that is why they're in exile to begin with, is because they had turned away from God and served other gods. They say, no. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. They don't say that in the text, but that's obviously what, what they're acting on. No, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. O king, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. That needs to be our attitude with regards to this woketopia that's being constructed around us. That needs to be our attitude with regards to this insistence on bending the knee to bankrupt ideologies, to Marxism in the United States of America. We don't live in ancient Israel, and we can't live in la-la land. We cannot imagine that just because this is not the Old Testament, 
that there is no time for war, as Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes. No, there's a time for peace, and there's a time for war. For everything under heaven, there is a time and a season. There is a time for love, but there's also a time for hate. There is a time for embracing, and there is a time to refrain from embracing. There is a time to bind up, and there is a time to break. And right now, ladies and gentlemen, is a time for war, for hate, for breaking, to refrain from embracing, because what is at stake is our lives. What is at stake is our posterity. What is at stake is our faithfulness to God. When one side says we can destroy people's reputations with lies, with false accusations, there's a commandment against that. That's not a political issue. That's not business as usual, you know, with the way that politics is, so we're just going to stay out of all that. No, that is a commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. When someone says abortion is a woman's right, we need to be pro-choice. That is not a political issue. That is a commandment. Thou shalt not murder. When someone says, hey, the LGBT community has been oppressed for all this time and they've got a really tough road to hoe and we need to celebrate them, we need to affirm them, we need to build them up. The reason they're all committing suicide is not because they cannot be happy, they cannot be content, they cannot be satisfied living in complete rebellion against the way that God created them. So now we've got to throw parades for them. Now we've got to light up our White House in rainbow colors to celebrate. Now we've got to fine and imprison and terminate people if they say an untoward word to LGBT persons. We have to destroy their lives. That is not a political issue, friends. That is a commandment. Thou shalt not. Well, God says thou shalt not, and then we hear this person over there who says you'd better or else. And our response should be, well, I will take or else. Right? Of course right. Yes, that is what it is. Now, some of the feedback that I got on my episode that I recorded with regards to the debate. That was my first uh, getting back into the podcasting thing. After almost two years, in this uh, February coming up in 2021, that'll mark two years since the last time I recorded a full episode for this podcast. And in that two years of time, I no longer uh, live in eastern Montana. Now I live in northeastern Colorado. Uh, I no longer have my cheap little $30 microphone anymore. I now have a Blue Yeti, which I love. I love it in uh, in a way that uh, you can only love inanimate objects. It is a great microphone, so the sound quality is much better. In two years, I've figured out how to use uh, audio editing software. I use DaVinci Resolve. I was uh, advised to download that by Paul Pavlik, a friend of mine and pastor here in Evans, and uh, I, I am much happier with the sound quality 
that I have out of this microphone and with the uh, editing software compared with two years ago. A lot of life has also happened. But I recorded the debate, and the debate was about not the presidential debate that was had last week between Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump. I thought I was clear about that on the front end. I might have misled people with my hook. I might have done a bait and switch. And I apologize for that if uh, you were victim of my uh, my indiscretion. But what I wanted to talk about there was the debate between these two competing visions of man and God and the world. Because at its base, it really is a theological dilemma. It really is a a, a philosophical difference. And it is fundamental. It's foundational. One house is built on sand. The other house is built on rock. And this is not about Donald Trump. And it's not about Joe Biden. It is not about how tan and strong and handsome and confident and articulate every, you know, person who's running on the Republican ticket is, every person who's running on the Democratic ticket uh, is. This is not about how clever we are and how clever our representatives are. This is about what is true, what is real, what is good. And do the things that we say and believe and, and who we are line up with those things? Or are they contrary? And if they're contrary, what should we expect to happen? right? Should we expect that we can just live in a foolish way, in a wicked way forever, and that God's justice just is going to sleep? And and that, like Nietzsche said, God is dead? No, 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 no. No. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, good luck doing that when you're apathetic about your neighbor's destruction, mind, body, and soul. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Good luck doing that when, like King Saul, you hide in the tent as the Philistine champion mocks publicly between the two armies, not only the army of the living God, but God himself, and you sit passively by. Good luck loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind when you don't read his whole word, and believe it. Micah 6.8 says, love mercy. It also says, do justice. And if we cannot do justice, and if we are confused about what justice is, how then can we say we love God? If Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes that there is a time and a season for everything under heaven, that there is a time for war, and we insist that it is only ever time for peace, peace when there is no peace, how does that Love either God or our neighbor. The simple truth is that it doesn't. And so there needs to be voices saying, I will go, send me. There need to be voices saying, listen, it is written. When the scriptures get perverted and get twisted and are misquoted and abused, like Satan abuses scriptures, like the Democratic Party abuses scripture, when that happens, Christians cannot say, well, that's politics, and sit on the sideline. You might say, I'm very tired, and it's been a hard year. It's been a hard year for my family. It's been a hard year for my profession. It's been a hard year 
for me personally, for all these reasons, I just can't. I just can't do it anymore. I'll let God be your judge, but let me tell you about my couple of years, the couple of years that have intervened between when I last recorded a podcast episode and now. In the past two years, where I left off was that a church that I had been a deacon at for two years stubbornly refused to abide by Matthew 18. We had people in leadership who either directly were doing this or they were accomplices tearing others down publicly when they had a conflict, when there was a conflict, when there was an issue between persons. We were not going to that person privately, just the two of them. We were waiting until a business meeting for the church. We were waiting until everybody was gathered together. And then we were blasting that person for everyone to see as a way of trying to bully, as a way of trying to destroy competitors, as a way of being malicious and slanderous and abusive. And because it was a certain family and because it was certain personalities and because those people had been there a long, long time, and by all accounts, north and south, they had been doing that for generations, for decades. They did it with impunity. And so I, for two years as a deacon, pleaded with the elders. I pleaded with the pastor. I want to go to these people privately, like Matthew 18 says. And what I heard instead was, A, if they're doing it to you, you need to check to see whether your selfish pride is actually the reason why you want to do this. Are you being like Jesus? You need to check your motives. I'm not so sure that you have righteous motives for wanting to do this. I was told also if it concerned other people, if this was being done to other people in the church, even the pastor's wife, that that was none of my business and that's not my job to go straighten everybody out. And so it was heads I win, tails you lose. You can't confront this abusive, inappropriate behavior when it happens to you. You can't correct it and confront it when it happens to other people. You just can't confront it because we just don't go there, right? It's a dysfunctional family. And uh, there were, on the one hand, abusive, self-indulgent, self-absorbed bullies who wanted to pretend at righteousness. They wanted to pretend at Christianity. They wanted to pretend that they were super spiritual until they realized that something wasn't going the way they wanted it to go. And then you find out that their God is themselves. Their God is their reputation. They're getting their way. And then on the other side of the equation, you had enablers. You had passive, weak enablers who couldn't have a conflict to save their lives or to save other people's lives or to save the church or to save our faithfulness to God and his word. And so for two years, I tried. I tried earnestly. I tried to do it patiently. I tortured myself, staying up all hours of the night, trying to think about how to do this in a way that would be effective, in a way that would be godly, in a way that would not compromise my testimony, my self-respect, my family's well-being, other people's well-being, the truth. 
And finally, at the very end, it came to a head, and I wrote a letter to the elder from the family that was abusive, and he ignored me for three months. I tried to meet with him. I tried to talk with him. He ignored me. He blew me off. And then his parents, who were some of the worst abusers in the church, ended up leaving for a while because our governing board, one of the other elders, wanted to meet with them and talk with them about the way that they were treating people, the way they were conducting themselves, and how it was not in accordance with the scripture. And that is entirely appropriate. That's why there are elders and overseers, is to judge these matters. Uh, they left. Rather than dealing with uh, meeting with an elder in the church, they just left. They stopped coming. And then they wouldn't answer the phone. And they wouldn't return phone calls. And these are wealthy people that thought they're standing in the community. And their reputation and their uh, boldness would be a shield from accountability. And so then we start talking about this as a governing board, because I sat on the governing board as a deacon for two years. We start talking about this, and it gets kicked around. Well, what if they come back? What are we going to do when they come back, if they come back at a certain point? And I took the position very strongly. Well, when they come back, we need to sit down and talk with them and say, hey, listen, you can't act the way that you acted before you left. This is not acceptable. This is ungodly. You are being wicked. God says, don't do it, and you do it. God says, don't talk that way, and you talk that way. You're being abusive. And I, I'm saying it in far bolder language than I said back then. But back then, I was still trying to tiptoe around. I was still walking on eggshells, trying like mad to accomplish something for saying it. And I didn't want to go too far and then have people shut me out and say, oh, you're just a firebrand and you're just young and impetuous. and You don't really understand how things work around here. And it didn't matter, right? No matter how tepid I was, no matter how carefully I chose my words, they, they said that anyways. So then what was the point of tiptoeing around? What was the point of walking on eggshells? They wanted what they wanted, what they wanted, what they wanted. And it didn't matter that God said this because they wanted that. It didn't matter that they were hurting people because they were helping themselves. The God was their stomach. They loved themselves. They didn't love their neighbor as they loved themselves. And they didn't love God with our, all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. And as a church, as leadership, cover was made for the sins that were being committed by certain people. There was partiality. And I confronted it. And then I ended up in turn getting told that I was being unloving and that I should be ashamed of myself for saying what I was saying and that I just had it out for them. And, uh, and so I resigned. I resigned and uh, my family left. And there's a lot more to the story that I don't intend to get into in this uh, time that I've got left here today. But it broke my heart. And I met with pastors from the church to the north and the church to the south in the same denomination, in the same district. And I asked, did I do what I should have done? Here's what happened. Did I handle this the right way? And I was told, yeah, at least from what you're telling us, you handled this the right way. And we're sorry that that happened. And learn from it and analyze it and understand it and grow through it. 
Um, that happened. And then the following summer, my wife had a major knee surgery and she almost died. And it was four and a half hours one way to get to the surgery center in Billings, Montana from Sydney, Montana. And uh, they gave her too much um, pain medicine. You know, they gave her medicine when they put her under to, um, you know, block the nerves in her leg. They were giving, it was major knee surgery is what it was. And the nerve block didn't take. And so when she woke up from surgery, she was in excruciating pain. And so then they gave her, I think, too much to compensate and to bring it under control. And then they didn't bring me back for two and a half hours when the surgery was only supposed to last an hour and a half. And the surgeon never did even talk with me. And I had to go up to the window and say, hey, you know, how's my wife doing? Finally, they send a nurse and she says, we're trying to get her pain under control. She woke up in a lot of pain. We'll bring you back just as soon as we've got her pain under control. It's another half hour. They finally bring me back and she is pale and sweating and clammy and loopy. Her heart rate's really low. The nurses look nervous. And they keep telling me, we need to try and get her to wake up. We, we need to get her to try and eat or drink something. We need to just keep talking with her because we need this pain medicine to kind of wear off and get out of her system. And it shook me. It shook me badly. And, uh, you know, then you know, the, the, the pain meds, trying to get caught up on the pain meds was really a challenge. And... Uh, so that whole drive home from Billings, my wife is just sobbing. And I've never seen her like this. I've, I've been there for all seven of my children being born. I've never seen her like that. And it was hard as her husband. I am supposed to protect her. I'm supposed to take care of her. I'm supposed to make sure that she's okay. And I couldn't do anything. What, what could I do, right? I call the hospital. I call the surgery center. I call the surgeon. He won't pick up. Finally, his physician's assistant calls back. And says, you know, come on back, bring her in. We'll take a look. We'll see what's going on. We'll see if we can give her something stronger. And so we did that. And uh, they gave her some stronger pain meds. But it was a long, tough road to recovery. And uh, I ended up not being able to take any vacation time. I had no vacation time with the job that I had right then. I had no sick leave. If I wanted to take time off for my wife's surgery, I... I could take a week without pay. And, uh, and so it took some wrangling, and eventually they said, well, you know, I, I, we, we could give you a week of vacation time. Oh, really? Like, very generous of you. Like, most places, that's a given. Most places, if your wife has to have major knee surgery, it's a given that you can take some time off, some paid time off for that. Because, I mean, we've got seven kids. Like, she can't have a major knee surgery and then just be running around the house the next day feeding and clothing and, and cleaning and, and all of that. And I, you know, so that, that was extremely stressful because I had a week and then I had to rush off back to work because we have, we have to have money coming in. Right. And so that was extremely difficult, very, very difficult. And she had months and months and months. Her surgery was in July. She had physical therapy on through February. And, and, you know, her surgery was in July. I get calls uh, from a guy that I worked with who had moved down to Colorado. 
And he says, hey, you know, the place that I just started a job with, they're looking for another INE technician. Would you be interested in coming and, and talking with them and interviewing? I recommended you to them. And I said, sure, yeah, that would be great. Because by this point, I'm just I'm frustrated with the situation with church. I'm frustrated with the situation with work, that I couldn't take enough time off for my wife. I'm still traumatized by the fact that my wife almost died. And I'm just, I'm just over it, and I need an escape. I need to get out of here. This is not a good place to be. And, uh, and so I ended up, you know, I interviewed, and I was offered the job, and I accepted the job, and they gave me a relocation package. And so we moved to Greeley, Colorado in September of 2019. Now, January 2019 is when I spent three and a half hours being raked over the coals and told that I had been wicked to try and confront abusive behavior in the church. So I resign and I leave. July 2019, my wife has major knee surgery and almost dies. September 2019, we moved to Greeley, Colorado. You put it together. September 2019, we move here and we're trying to rent out our place in Montana because we still own a house in city of Montana. Has some bad experiences with renters. But we work through it. And uh, October, you know, we're kind of settled in as so we're trying to explore a little bit. We go up to Estes Park as a family one weekend and go up to the mountains another weekend. And we go to Colorado Springs as a family one weekend and see Garden of the Gods. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. It was amazing. We get home from Garden of the Gods in October and find out that my mother-in-law has passed away. And that breaks my wife's heart. And so now I've got to take a week off. We've got to drive to Ohio and go to the funeral and be around people that before we moved to Montana in 2012, were not all so very encouraging and uplifting. And they were part of the reason why we moved to Montana to begin with. You know, I feel a lot of identification with David in you know, the story where Samuel comes and he's supposed to look for God's anointed there among Jesse's sons. And David is told to just stay out of the way, go tend the sheep, just get out of here. You're an embarrassment. That is very much how I felt leading up to moving to Montana from Southern Ohio back in 2012. And so we go back and we're dealing with the loss of my mother-in-law or seeing people that I haven't seen for eight years, seven years. And, uh, and so that was difficult. That was a trial. And uh, we come home, recover from that. And not but a few weeks later, my grandmother Mullet passes away. And it was, it was difficult. I'm not going to get into the details of it, but it was, it was difficult. And it was not quick. And there was some disagreement in the family as to how to handle it and there was some conflict and it was unpleasant and it was painful and uh, my brother and I we ended up going didn't take the whole families just he and I drove up to the funeral we wanted to be there with our dad to support him and uh, to be with him to encourage him and so we did um, that was just you know not even a month after we had gone me and my entire family me and my wife and our seven kids, 
drove to Ohio and back for my mother-in-law, her funeral. And uh, now I'm, I'm going up to Montana for my grandmother's funeral. And, uh, and so that happened, right? That's November, early November. And you fast forward a few months and COVID hits. And oil prices crash and go negative. And all of a sudden, a lot of these things that we were excited about doing in Colorado, we can't do because you can't go anywhere because you got to stay in your house because the governor's locked everything down because supposedly we're all going to die. And uh, that was hard. No church for months. And then my other grandmother passes away down in Florida. And because there's a spike in cases in Florida and because money is really, really tight because overtime went away when oil prices went negative. And because there's bad blood on my mother's side of the family between her and her brother and her sister. And my mother's not even going to go to the funeral. My brother and I were just like, man, do we, do we go? Do we not go? Like, what do we do here? And we ended up not going because it was just too much. Right? There were too many reasons stacked against the cost-benefit analysis to going. We did not feel that our grandmother would have expected us, required us to go. And, uh, and so we, we didn't go. I didn't go to my, my grandmother's funeral. And that was hard. Um, also hard in the midst of all this, before COVID really, really hit, early February, my wife goes in for an ultrasound and she calls me. I'm on my way home from work. She calls me to say that it's ectopic. I didn't really know what that was, but ectopic means that the, the, the fertilized egg implants itself in the fallopian tubes and you cannot have a baby grow to term and, and, and make it in the fallopian tubes. And so my wife is crying and she tells me they want me to go in for surgery right away because it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's life-threatening. I come home. She and I... Uh, talked about it. We got our neighbors two houses down who have been an absolute godsend to watch the kids for us. And I took my wife to the hospital and as I'm trying to get her checked in, her fallopian tube bursts and she passes out. And thankfully I was there right next to her because she looked like she was about to pass out and I catch her. But she's throwing up. She's seizing. And uh, before I really know what's happening, they're taking my wife back. And I don't know what's going to happen to her. And I, I know that we've lost the baby. And that's, that's heartbreaking for me because this is not what we were expecting. So within the course of a year, my wife almost dies twice. My mother-in-law passes away. Both my grandmothers pass away. Fast forward to June, 
we find out we're pregnant again. We didn't mean to get pregnant again so soon. We're nervous. We're scared. Uh, we want to be hopeful. We we love children. Children are a blessing. They're a heritage from the Lord. And uh, we believe that. And we get pregnant again. And she goes in for an ultrasound. Once they get a you know, heartbeat, they everything's fine. The baby is implanted where it should be, and that's great. A number of weeks later, I think it was uh, seven or eight weeks later, she goes in for another ultrasound. They can't find a heartbeat. And she calls, crying again. Again, I'm on my way home from work. She says, uh, they want me to go in for another ultrasound because, you know, this is a new machine and the person that was doing the ultrasound is not really a trained, certified ultrasound technician. They're just a nurse and, and you know, they, they want me to go to the hospital and get another ultrasound. I said, okay, well, let's, let's do that. I'll be there. We'll go right in. And so we did. And they couldn't find a heartbeat either. And so in June, my wife miscarries at home. We had the option of going in for a DNC and we just didn't feel right about that. It just, it didn't, it didn't feel right. So she miscarried and uh, delivered a tiny little perfect baby. And what do you do, right? Like, what do you do? What's the, what's the proper way to put a miscarried child to rest. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to ask. I didn't, you know, I didn't particularly want to ask anybody, even if I knew who to ask or who to talk with about it. And so I wrapped up the uh, child that had been miscarried and I took them up to the mountains and I took them up to the uh, National Forest and I drove up into these uh, trails where nobody was, and I parked, and I went off the road a bit beside a stream. I found a big rock that was kind of embedded in the forest floor, and I unearthed it, and I laid the child to rest there, put the rock back in its place. With wildfires here in Colorado, here recently, that area is within, well within, right in the center of the zone that has been burned by this Cameron Peak fire, which is sad to me, not just because there's trees that have burned and forests and a danger to people's homes, that all is sad, but on a personal level, I laid this lost child, this child that was miscarried, to rest in a place that I thought would be restful, and peaceful, and beautiful, and quiet, and uh, not but three, four, five months later, that whole place goes up in smoke. And... That's just been kind of the past two years. 
So all of that is to say, if we're still hanging in there, and we are, if I can still get myself to sit down at the keyboard and write, sit down at my microphone and record a podcast, I don't know that it'll amount to a hill of beans worth of difference as far as changing your mind or helping you. But by golly, it's more likely that I'm going to change your mind or make a difference or do the right thing or help you if I'm doing it, if I'm trying. It's not going to be great. It's not going to be as as wonderful, flawless, confident, beautiful, seamless as it might have been otherwise. But by golly, this is what I've got to do. And so I'm going to do it. And I hope and I pray that however hard your year has been, however hard your past couple of years have been, that you can find strength in the Lord God to keep on, to press on, to do what's right, to do what you have to do. He's shown you, a man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Do it. Do it. So, with that, at an hour and nine minutes and some change, I thank you for listening. If you made it this far, if this was a boring sermon, I'm sorry. If it was uh, self-indulgent and disorganized and tedious and droning and boring, I don't know. But this is what I got. This is what you get if you're going to tune in, if you're going to listen. This is who I am. I'm not going to be contrived. I'm not going to be artificial. I'm going to try and be who God made me to be as well as I possibly can be and try and be uh, effective in that. If you're listening, if it helps you, praise God, and I'm glad. And uh, I hope you'll tune in to our next episode, listen to some other podcasts. If you have something that you'd like me to talk about or address in this uh, podcast, please let me know. Hit me up, garrettmullet at gmail.com. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-M-U-L-L-E-T at gmail.com. Or find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Parlor. Go to Parlor. Check it out. And, uh, yeah, be well. God bless. Thank you for listening. Until next time.